Part 3 of Chapter 2 of The Escaping Club This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Omri Lernow, Jerusalem. Chapter 2 in The Escaping Club by A. J. Evans One More Run, Part 3 I was awakened from my sleep abruptly by the blankets being torn off my bed. A nasty-looking Arab, in a uniform of a Turkish officer, was standing close to me, brandishing a revolver. A few feet away was a Turkish sentry, and in the background the Jews huddled together in the corner. The Arab took hold of my wrist and tried to pull me out of bed. That made me mad with anger. So I shook him off and damned his eyes, whereupon he presented the revolver at my head. So I took hold of myself and, obeying signs from him, got out of bed and began to dress into my wet things. Seeing me more docile, he lowered the revolver and, seizing his opportunity, patted me on the head to show there was no ill feeling. My resentment at this was so obvious that he produced the revolver again, but thereafter kept his distance. My feet and my shoes were in such a condition that it was clear that I should have great difficulty in walking. I pointed this out to him, and, whether at his order or out of kindness, the latter, I think, one of the Jews brought me a pair of old boots. Though the Jews had immediately sent word to the Turks, I feel no violent resentment towards them, as they were obviously frightened out of their skins at my presence in the house. In other ways, I think they did their best for me, and were sorry for me. Owing to their extreme poverty, they could not do much. I suppose they just had license to live from the Turks, and that's about all. Even at the time, most men would have preferred infinitely to take my chances of life and treatment rather than live under the conditions in which these Jews were living. Poor brutes! But then I had the same feeling about every Turkish soldier. Perhaps that is why the Turks are so callous of life. They live so close to the borderland, where life becomes intolerable, that it can mean a little to them to die. Just before we marched off, the Jews gave me some more of their disgusting meat, and when I reproached them for sending for the Turks so soon, they answered that they were terrified and could not help it. When we had gone a few hundred yards from the house, I saw suddenly that my wristwatch was missing. I made the Arab understand this by signs and let him know that I wanted to go back and fetch it. He refused, and when I showed signs of obstinacy, began to finger his revolver. So we continued the march. I made sure then that the brute had stolen it. It was a beautiful fine morning 
very fresh and pleasant after the rain, and though my feet hurt me, I was much refreshed by the food and sleep. As I knew from experience, alas, it was not till later that I should feel the full bitterness of failure. When we had gone about a mile, we came on a sentry standing beside the path. The Arab called to him, and he came up, a poor, miserable, underfed brute, and stood stiffly to attention. Apparently the soldier had failed to arrive in time to assist in my arrest. A few words passed, and then the Arab hit him half a dozen blows in the face with his hand. The man winced at each blow, but remained at attention, and then fell in behind. To see an unresisting man hit in this way now is a horrible and demoralizing sight, and I felt quite literally sick with rage. A little farther on, a second sentry was treated in exactly similar fashion. A walk of a little over half an hour through comparatively well-cultivated country brought us to the Jewish colony, the village of Hedera. There were many evidences that this colony had been a flourishing and pleasant little place in times of peace. The houses were of wood or stone, pretty and well built, and most of them stood in their own gardens, and there were many signs that a more civilized race than the Turks or Arabs had been in occupation. In an airy bungalow I was introduced to Ahmed Haki Bey. Turkish commandant of the place. He gave me a seat, as well as coffee, brandy, and unlimited cigarettes. A Turk, who spoke French, acted as interpreter, and seemed particularly anxious to impress upon me that the Turks were not barbarians. First of all, I had to be identified. There was some difficulty about this, as the description of me which apparently had been circulated, did not tally in the slightest degree with the original. However, they had little difficulty in accepting me as a wanted man, though the commandant said he felt a little aggrieved that I had no points of resemblance whatever to my official description. I was treated by him with great consideration, and after he had questioned me, more from curiosity than for official reasons, he asked me if I wanted anything. I answered that I wished to sleep, and then to eat. I was led by the interpreter to a very small room in which there was a bed and blankets. He was most anxious to impress me with the generous and civilized way in which I was being treated. And yet, he said, all Englishmen say that Turks are barbarians, don't they? Ah, no, I answered. Only those who have not come into the close contact with the Turks may have a false opinion of them. Then you do not now think the Turks barbarians? Since I have been a prisoner in their hands, I have completely changed my mind. As a matter of fact, in pre-war days, I always imagined the Turks to be rather good fellows. I had already changed my mind, and I was soon to be quite converted. 
the Turkish official is as corrupt, cruel, unscrupulous and ignorant as any class on earth. That some of them have a thin or even fairly thick coating of European civilization only makes them, in my opinion, the more odious. I came across a few, a very few, who seemed notable exceptions, but that may have been because I did not have time or opportunity to penetrate the outer coating of decency. During this conversation I took off most of my clothes, which were still very wet, and got into bed and soon fell asleep. When I awoke the room was cramped with people who had come to look at me. I counted sixteen at one time in that tiny room. Women came as well as men, and I was subjected to a hail of questions, either through the interpreter or by those who could speak German or French. One of the Jews who had been my host a few hours before came in and, seizing an opportunity, whispered to me in German, We did not take it, he did, indicating the Turkish officer who had captured me. I knew he was referring to my watch and determined to complain to the commandant. The whole position was most undignified, but I did not see how I could help it. After all, I was being treated with a crude and barbarous generosity, which was rather astonishing. About midday I was given food and then brought once more before the commandant. He was standing outside his bungalow, surrounded by a number of Turks and half the population of the village, and made a speech to me, which appeared to be most pleasant, and I gathered that he was complimenting both himself and me on the signal proof that he had been afforded me that the Turks were not barbarians. Both he and his interpreter had barbarian on the brain. When he had finished, I took the opportunity of stating that someone had stolen my watch, and added, very unwisely as I soon discovered, that I rather suspected his officer. This was something of an anticlimax. However, he soon recovered himself and gave me a hasty promise that he would investigate the matter. I abandoned all hope of seeing my watch again. The journey from Khedera to Tulkarim was made on horseback. To my disgust I found that the same Turk who had arrested me and whom I had just accused publicly of stealing my watch was to be my escort. The officer and I were mounted, but we were accompanied by two Turkish soldiers on foot, and I was astonished at the way these men kept up with us, in spite of rifles and ammunition and heavy clothes, and in spite of the heat, these men kept up a speed of quite six or seven miles an hour for the first six miles of the journey. After that the Turk deliberately left them behind. Keeping just behind me he urged my horse into a counter, which we kept up till we were well out of sight. By this time I had made absolutely certain that the brute intended to murder me, and my anxiety was not lessened when he drew a large revolver and had potshots at various objects by the wayside. 
Of course, he would have a simple and satisfactory excuse for shooting me by saying that I had attempted to escape. About half a mile ahead, in the otherwise flat plain, were two very low ridges which hid the path we were following from almost all sides, and I felt that it would be here that the deed would be done, and I began to think out a plan for attacking him first and then escaping in earnest. At the best, however, the situation seemed to me pretty serious. Of course, I may have misjudged him, but I still believe he intended to murder me. Just as we were crossing the first low ridge, a small caravan came round the corner. I breathed the prayer of thanksgiving, and my Turk put away his revolver and drew his horse up alongside of mine. For the rest of the way we were, to my great relief, and as luck would have it, never out of sight of human beings for more than a few minutes. However, as I said before, I may have misjudged the fellow. End of part 3 In One More Run In Chapter 2 of The Escaping Club by A. J. Evans